I jokingly said last week uh, during my sermon, because we've been going through Philippians as a church, uh, I asked, it was a challenge that went out to the fellows in the church. I said, are you modern man? Are you able to do the washing, the cooking, and this, that, and the other? Well, I can tell you this week I've had to do it all. So, <laughs> so yes, I am modern man. <laughs> Philippians 2. We've been going through this great letter that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi over the last few weeks. This church that was in Europe, Europe, Macedonia, that Paul had been urged. If you remember the story from Acts 16, Paul had been urged in a vision to come over from the, the mainland of Asia Minor over into, uh, into Europe to Macedonia and bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we know from Acts as well that Paul and his companions did just that. They sailed from Troas, via a place called Samothrace to Neapolis and then they legged it on foot to this place called Philippi which was a Roman colony and on the Sabbath because there was less than 10 Jewish men that lived in that Roman colony so there was no synagogue they went outside of the town to pray and they went to just by a river which was they'd obviously heard was a place that people would meet and they met outside this uh, this town some proselyte women who were praying one of them being this lady called Lydia and Lydia who after becoming a Christian she opened up a home to Paul and to his companions and looked after their their needs and later as this church began to grow and if you know the story through Acts it's a wonderful story to read this fledgling church met in Lydia's house well this was an act of selfless service on her part in response to the act of selfless service that Jesus by his death on the cross had done for her and indeed for all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we also know from this letter, it's quite unique that Paul wrote it while he was chained to a Roman soldier. Now, whether he physically wrote it himself or he dictated it to somebody else, we don't know. But he was under house arrest in Rome and he was waiting to hear what the outcome of that arrest would be after his trial. But even though he was in chains, he still praised God that his chains weren't a barrier to the gospel being advanced. And we see that back in in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. If you've got your Bibles open, if not, then I'll read it to you. He says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and the sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. We're not talking just a few people here. We're talking several thousand. They would have been involved in the palace guard. That would have been the, the guards themselves, then their families, their friends. So the word of God was really spreading. And as we saw there, there was that wonderful opportunity for the other Christians that were in, in Rome at that time to have the confidence to go and share Christ. Well, of course, prison is prison, and Paul had absolutely no idea what lay ahead for him. Would it be martyrdom, or would it be God's grace on his life to continue to bring the gospel? 
And of course, in his absence from the Philippians, Paul brought this challenge to the church that's just as applicable today. And I think it's a verse that we could really hang our hats on today, a verse that I think would be great if we learnt, probably have it as a motto sometime as a church verse. Paul says this, this is chapter 127, he said, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. They're great words, aren't they? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, of course, in these uncertain times that we live in, that uh, Rich sort of alluded to in his prayers, in this day and age where political correctness seems to hold the balance of power in society, we never know as Christians if our witness for Christ will be seen by some as promoting hatred, being homophobic and the like. And maybe, just maybe, at some point we might find ourselves facing prison for our faith. It's a a distinct possibility, the way things are going in this society. And you know, when we look around our world today, we shouldn't be surprised because many brothers and sisters are in prison for that very reason, because they are Christians and they uphold the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever happens, Paul says, and he was probably referring here to his possible outcome of his life. But whatever happens, we're to conduct ourselves as those who've responded to the gospel. Those who are genuinely born again, and as such should be demonstrating Christ in our lives. And that will mean living lives that imitate Christ. A life that Paul tells us earlier in this chapter that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And then continuing on in chapter 2, Paul goes on to encourage the Philippians and us in how we should live out our lives as Christians, as men and women who've been rescued from sin through Christ's death on the cross. His blood that's washed us clean from all sinfulness and all righteousness, so that now we're fit to serve both Christ and the church, as he calls us to do, selflessly. And as we looked at last week, without grumbling and without arguing. That's in verse 14 of chapter 2. Well, Paul goes on to commend two men who, as believers, were working out their salvation, which is what he started in, uh, from verse 12 to talk about. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Firstly, he talks about this man, Timothy. Then secondly... Excuse me, a man that we only ever meet in this letter. He's not referred to anywhere else in the scriptures. This man who sounds more like a Greek restaurant, Epaphroditus. And if I make a mistake pronouncing his name, as I will do, please forgive me. But these two men, they conducted themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of salvation. And they put into practice all that Paul has said that's gone before in this letter so far to the Philippians. Just take a look with me at verses 19 down to 24, because we're concentrating first off on Timothy. Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered whenever I receive news about you. I've no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So as I said, first off, we're thinking about Timothy. Well, I urged our congregation last week to think about those who helped us, those who encouraged us in the gospel as we began our work of working out our salvation. And I'm sure that we can each look back on one person, maybe two people, who helped us through our Christian lives. Paul, as we know, was a spiritual father to Timothy. We see that, don't we, in the in Acts of the Apostles. This man, Timothy's own father, was a Greek. He was an unbelieving Greek. But his mother and his grandmother were proselytes. And they were given the task of bringing Timothy up in the knowledge and the fear of God. Then, of course, as, when, as with many people, including us here, Timothy turned to Christ. He received God's gift of salvation in his life. But there's just two quick things here before we go any further. I mentioned about Timothy's father being an unbelieving Greek. He was an absentee spiritual father, if you like. And you know, there's an urgent need for men to respond to the gospel today. I think as a church, we've got a huge task ahead of us to reach men, especially in this village. And boy, oh boy, is it hard to try and reach men who think they've got it all who think they don't need the Lord. And if they did have the Lord, then they don't want anybody to know because they might be perceived as a failure. That's what we're up against. We're up against a battle like that. Because, you see, the Scriptures tell us that we, as men, should not abdicate our responsibility before the Lord to bring up our families to know Christ. And, of course, that means a setting an example, doesn't it? If men are not setting an example to their children, then it's not surprising that the kids are not going to come along to church either. Firstly, we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's what Paul says here. And then secondly, on a practical note, men, we're to take our families to church. They're to sit under the word of God. Now, there's a word here also for women. Because you women probably outnumber us men in the church today. That's obvious tonight, there's a look around. So you, just like Timothy's mother and grandmother, in the case of a spiritual absentee father, you're to bring your families up to know the Lord. Well, Paul's hope was to send Timothy to the Philippians so that they could hear how he was doing, how Paul was getting on. And at some point later, then he would receive a note back to find out how they were doing. And Paul's relationship with Timothy was such, verses 20 to 21, that what Paul saw in Timothy was an absolute like-mindedness to Christ and himself. He had a genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of the Philippians that came from his love, first off, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this, he says, I have no one like him. No one like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Others, Paul goes on to say, look out for their own interests, not of those of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, of course, that begs the question of us. How concerned are we for the welfare of other believers around us today? 
Are we concerned for them? Perhaps members of our own fellowship, it's great that you've been praying for Keith, for Aveline and for Faith and for Noah and for Keith's dad. Or perhaps you've been praying, as we prayed tonight, for the persecuted church around the world. Or maybe you have a friend at this time who, as a Christian, is struggling. Struggling to maintain their Christian life. And they need your encouragement. They desperately need your encouragement. Or I wonder at times if we can perhaps be like those that Paul had caused to chide back in chapter 1. Those whose motives as Christians wasn't out of love, but was rivalry, was envy. They were not motivated by their love for God. We see that there in in chapter 1. Whereas in contrast... What we see here in Philippians, in verse 22, is that the Philippians knew that Timothy had proved himself as being like-minded to Paul in both his love for Christ and his commitment to Christ and his desire to do Christ's will. We might say today that Timothy was a chip off the old block. That's exactly what he was. He was a prodigy of, of this man, Paul. And that's seen, of course, in how, like Paul, he was prepared to go wherever God called him to go, be it Ephesus, be it Rome, or to this church in Philippi. But both he and Paul loved with a passion. It's obvious from this letter how much they both loved it, because when you look at the beginning of this letter, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. So this letter was from them both. So they both had that same passion. And of course, verse 23, here we see that Paul's hope was to send this trusted brother in the Lord to the Philippians, taking with him news of Paul's situation. And of course, his hopes were that he would be released soon and that he continued on with the work of the gospel and maybe at some point go and visit this church again himself. Well, the challenge for each of us today is, are we prepared to go wherever God wants us to go? And I I was just thinking when I was preparing this, knowing that I'd be around here tonight, I think back to, was it Val and Gordon Cookney who went off to Bradford, didn't they? I mean, what what an amazing step of faith. I know he was made redundant, so God kind of gave him a push. But isn't it a wonderful testimony of two people who wanted to serve God and they've gone and done that? And I have to say, in my own situation, I remember when God called me to go and work on the streets of Brighton. I stood there, my knees trembling because I thought, no, well, why, why do you want me on the streets? I can't talk to people on the streets. But you know, God does. He equips us and he enables us to do the things that he wants us to do. And of course, when we take that step of faith, then it helps for the future. God equips us for the future. We may be reluctant to serve God in ways that take us out of our familiar surroundings. I have to confess I was. I was dreadfully afraid of going on the streets because I was out of my comfort zone. But like Paul and Timothy, we can be assured that if the Lord has called us, well, boy, he's going to undertake for us. He's going to look after us. He's going to give us all the things that we need to do the work he's called us to do. Well, although Paul's mentioned in verse 20 that there was no one like Timothy who he felt confident had the same concerns for the spiritual welfare of the Philippians, 
Paul knew that Timothy must remain in Rome with him. And this wasn't out of selfishness of Paul wanting the companionship of of this dearly loved son. But he knew that if he was going to be executed, that he would need somebody that he could trust, somebody who was like-minded to himself to administrate and encourage the spread of the gospel. So Paul sent back with this letter this man, this Greek restaurant owner, Epaphroditus. Look at verses 25 to 30. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the very help that you yourselves could not give me. Great words, aren't they? Paul says, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier. Well, like you here at the Free Church, we support a number of mission societies. And one of those is Wycliffe Bible Translators. And a few years ago, uh, my niece and her husband, they went and served for a few years with Wycliffe out in Papua New Guinea. They served in a supporting role. She was an accountant, a qualified uh, chartered accountant, and he was a qualified primary school teacher. We might say, well, what's that got to do with Wycliffe? You see, theirs wasn't a work that we might see as being the important work of a translator, those that we would put up on a pedestal. But, you know, without someone looking after the accounts, making sure that people got paid, that money that they needed for this, that and the other was, was there, and without somebody there to teach the children of the translators, well, that work wouldn't advance as quickly as it does. Because the translators would have to be distracted to think about their children, to think about the money, to think about all of the things, the practicalities of life. Well, this man, Epaphroditus, he wasn't a Paul, and neither was he a Timothy. He wasn't an evangelist. What he was, was a caring, humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. One who, when he heard through the church of Paul's need, he responded to a brother in need, a brother in Christ. And that's how Paul sees him, verse 25. My brother co-worker, fellow soldier. Well, let's just look at each of those three descriptions that Paul makes of this Christian man and apply them, if we can, to our own lives. But firstly, we need to remember one thing, that prisoners today, unlike those in Paul's day, prisoners today, they receive food and clothing, etc. I have to say on 
Wednesday night when we sat in casualty up in Brighton for, I don't know, it was six hours, I think it was, in came a poor chap chained between two prison warders and I did feel sorry for him because his dignity was there. But he was all clothed in prison garb and all the rest of it and it made me think everything was supplied for him, three meals a day. Some of the guys on the street, they used to come out of prison and go and put a brick through somebody's window so they go back inside. Simple as that. But go back at probably to the 18th century, so it's not so far along ago, prisoners had to rely on family. They had to rely on friends and the church to meet their basic needs until, of course, the prison reforms came. Well, we know that Paul would ordinarily have supported himself. He was a tent maker. But you can't make tents if you're chained to a Roman soldier. So he was no longer able to ply his trade. So enter this man, Epaphroditus, sent to Rome by this church to care for Paul and to bring him their gifts. Well, sometimes Christians refer to fellow believers as brothers and sisters, because that's what we are. We're men and women made in the image of God, we're equal in God's sight and we're equally saved from sin. So there's no difference between us. But, you know, today we tend to use those terms brother and sister rather loosely in our dealings with one another. There was a minister back in Hove, I won't mention who he was, but if he called you brother, oh boy, you were in trouble because it wasn't meant as an endearment, it was a poke at you. But we do use that term rather loosely, don't we? But just look at how Paul refers to this man Epaphroditus. He says, my brother my brother. That suggests a real genuine closeness, doesn't it? A bond of fellowship between two men who'd come to serve. This man had come to serve Paul, this great evangelist. He probably held him in real high esteem, high regard. But Paul regards this fellow as a brother which identifies both men as being equal in Christ, because that's what we are. If you remember, Paul had urged the Philippians, they were to be united in Christ. They were to display humility that showed itself in being concerned for one another's needs, being like-minded and having the same love for Christ, which is wonderfully seen later when, with Paul's concern for the health of this man Epaphroditus. Well, just think about the geography and the history of the time that this was set in. Philippi was about 800 miles from Rome. So it was very likely a six-week journey, and it was a most uncomfortable journey, I should imagine. But Epaphrophitus made that journey because of his desire to serve Paul. And as we see in verses 26 to 27, the journey obviously took its toll on him physically. Paul says he almost died. He almost died. Well, I wonder, are we demonstrating that same love and concern for our fellow brothers and sisters today in the Lord that we see here? Are our concerns prepared to forgo our own interests in order to meet their needs? Now, I know Keith's dad is Keith's dad and their family, but Keith made that journey to go and minister to his dad, to comfort his father, to pray with him. Are we prepared to go to those same great lengths ourselves today and not count the personal costs 
but think more about the needs of others. Well, secondly, Paul calls Epaphroditus a co-worker. Well, again, mention Keith. He and I are both pastors. We have that privilege of being pastors. But that doesn't mean that we see ourselves as more prominent in the church than you guys. In fact, we're to conduct ourselves as your servants. That's what we are. We're servants. And that's how Paul sees Epaphroditus, a fellow servant of Christ, a co-worker, because that's what he's called himself at the beginning of this letter. Servants of Christ Jesus, he and Timothy and Epaphroditus as well. You see, by God's grace, we've each been chosen, we've each been called out of this world to be God's representatives. And as such, God has gifted and equipped each of us to serve him. Some as apostles, some as prophets, some as teachers, some as helpers, some as healers and some as guides. That's what Paul said to the church in Corinth, wasn't it? But in each case, Paul says we've been baptised into one spirit so as we form one body. That's what we are. So by definition, we're each, as Paul and Aphroditus were, we're co-workers together in the gospel. That's what every one of us is. You're co-workers in the gospel. You don't have to stand out the front here to be a co-worker. You don't have to play the guitar. You don't have to be able to preach, pray, read the Bible. Just being here and being a member of the body of Christ, you're co-workers. Well, is that how you see yourself today? Or do we allow that little voice to come up in our minds that comes so often into our heads? That voice that has that one purpose in life, and that's to convince us that we're somehow insignificant. That we should never, ever regard ourselves as a co-worker because we're simply not good enough. Well, let me just remind you again of what Paul said to the Corinthians for we are all baptised by one spirit so as to form one body. Well, in the letter to Timothy that Paul wrote, Paul said to Timothy, you know, the spirit that we received, it isn't a spirit of timidity. Yes, a spirit of humility, not timidity. And it's in no way a spirit of timidity. So we shouldn't think that it isn't at work in us, equipping us to be co-workers. Well, thirdly, Paul says of this man, Epaphroditus, he's a fellow soldier. Well, is that how you see yourself today? Do you regard yourself as a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, we often put the TV on these days, don't we? And we see these men dressed in black and their faces all covered, the black flag with the Islamic writing on it. And they're trotting across the desert and there's songs going on in the background. And that's, that's the sort of picture we have, isn't it, of soldiers But of course we know that these guys are under the illusion that they're doing God's will. But of course we know that that's furthest from the truth. They're not doing God's will at all. But I'm sure you get the picture of a soldier. Well, we may not wear battle dress, as indeed some organisations do. But we are to dress ourselves, as Paul told the Ephesians, in readiness to take our stand against Satan. To take our stand against the rulers, the powers and the authorities of this dark world. 
spiritual enemies that are just as real to us today as the enemies that Paul faced in his day. And although this man Epaphroditus may not have been standing on the the street corners of Rome preaching the gospel, his very service to Paul put him under Satan's radar, just as it is with every one of us. He was subjected to all the same attacks of the evil one that we encounter each and every day. And make no mistake about it, we are in a battle. We're in a battle against sin, the world and the, and the devil. But we can take heart, can't we, as Christians? We can take heart because through Jesus' death and his resurrection, he's won the victory. Hallelujah to that. Satan now stands condemned. But of course we know, don't we? Although he's condemned, he's like a mortally wounded animal. And that's when he's at his most dangerous. And one of Satan's ploys is seen very much here towards the end of these verses. He loves to damage people, to hurt them. And do you know where he does it most? In here, in the church. Hurtful comments that people make to one another. Aphroditus, or Epaphroditus as his name is, was called to serve Christ. He was called away from the fellowship, only then to return because of his illness. And we often see that, don't we, with folks that go off to mission. They go off, they're fanfared by the church, they're promised to be prayed for, they're supported financially maybe, only for something to happen that could happen to any one of us. And they have to come back. They have to come back. And when they come back, this is what Paul's getting at here at the end, towards the end of these verses. They find there's probably been a question mark raised over their suitability to serve. And they're made to feel that somehow they failed. This is what Paul says. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. Not a failure. He almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you couldn't give me. That's what he says. You know, we only have to look today, don't we, at stories that are published in heart, evangelicals now, to see that there's many, many ordinary Christian men and women, just like us, who every day they risk their lives in doing the Lord's work. Both Timothy and Epaphroditus served Christ in a way that he'd set them apart to do. Both of them lived lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as believers, they were therefore united together in Christ, brothers in Christ, fellow workers with God in the work of the gospel. And both, as we've seen here, were subject to the battles that we face every day against Satan. And just as Paul commends both these men through God's word to us here, We know that a greater commendation awaits them and all God's people who are true brothers and sisters in Christ. That commendation will come when we stand in glory, when we stand before the Lord, where we'll be regarded as co-workers with Christ in spreading the gospel. 
and as soldiers standing firm against the enemy in what Paul has said earlier in this chapter is a dark, crooked generation. And like Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus as Christians were to demonstrate Christ, which is exactly what they did when you look at these verses. They demonstrated Christ in their lives. They demonstrated that they'd received the gospel and they were standing firm in the gospel. And they were to shine for him in the darkness of this world. Well, that's the call that God makes on us today. All of you who, like me and like many others, are living lives that are worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've responded to. And you and I are to shine for him, like these two men, in the darkness of this world.